literally like, wait, like lightning can take me down. And like, there was a very real conversation in my head that was happening of like, well, then who cares about any, like, does anything matter or does everything matter? You know, the universe has a funny way of shaking things up in a person's life. And Chris's story is no exception. We were really inspired by her resilience. She has overcome so many obstacles with recession, writing her first book, working in tech, a crazy New York City building fire, lightning striking a plane. We've never heard a story quite like it. Guys, please share and rate this podcast. And if you or anyone you know would be a good fit, We'd love to have you reach out at howhumanschange.com. Thanks. And here's Krista. Like what instigates a change? And reading through a little bit of your bio that you sent me, you described yourself as a proud member of this last generation, which for people listening and doesn't know what that is, that's just when someone has a lot of job titles and they put a forward slash between those job Mm -hmm. titles. Yeah, exactly. Um, Mm -hmm. And you're now getting into, you're going back to school for a, um, let's see if I can remember this, a master's in science in biomimicry. Yeah, so I have applied to Arizona State University. I was hoping that I would know by now my application is still under consideration. Okay. But yes, but that's that's ultimately what I would like to do. It's part of, I think it's a backlash to what we were just talking about of, like I've worked in technology for so long and there's parts of me that love technology and I love what it's been able to do for us. But I actually got into product development because I liked working on real things, like not software, not an app, not technology, but real stuff. And I'm also very concerned about what's happening with the environment, what's happening with our built environment and our cities. And I've always really loved science and I'm personally passionate about science. And so it's taking my product development experience and saying, actually, I care about how we put cities and communities together. I care about what are like we live in a way that does not support life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we live in a throwaway culture. We don't design products to last because um, it's cheaper to buy them, to buy replacements than it is to fix what we have. Right. Um, so it's really figuring out in product development, how do we actually build products that are affordable but are also sustainable? And then how do we create a built environment? You know, our subway systems, our buildings, our, you know, wastewater treatment plants. Like how, how do we actually make life more sustainable as opposed to what we've done to the planet, which is essentially turning it into our trash bin. <laughs> um, and what is what is biomimicry? Tell me what that is. I don't know. I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm sure I'm not the only person who doesn't know what that you word means. You don't know. What, I mean, I, well, you, you go ahead and explain. I, you take <laughs> <laughs> I'm so it was actually, uh, it really came into being um, because of a woman named Janine Bennis. Uh, she lives in the Bitterroot Valley in Montana, and she is a scientist and a naturalist. And she started working with companies on a consulting basis um, with people who were trying to develop different types of, of products and systems. And she would look at how the natural world uh, would solve oh. these types of problems and apply it to what we build. And so it is literally mimicking biological structures and processes to build more sustainable human products. Do you have a um, popular example that you use? Oh yeah, I have a, a bunch of them. So one of them is, um, so in Japan, there are those high speed trains, right. um, the bullet train. And so when they fir- when the engineer first built those trains, they were having a real problem because every time they were going so fast, they would go- come out of the tunnel and there'd be this huge sonic boom that would happen every single time. And and they couldn't continue to have the train do that, but they couldn't solve the problem. So this engineer was out. Can we just one pause day. and say, what a bunch of idiots. That's <laughs> such an easy, wow. I could have solved that one. why couldn't you solve yeah. that? <laughs> yeah. um, and they were uh. very frustrated. Like they couldn't figure out how to, how to get rid of it. So the engineer who was leading the project was out and he was watching these hummingbirds, these kingfisher hummingbirds, um, and they dive into the water to catch their fish and come back out. What he noticed is that when they dove into the water, they did not make a splash and they did not make a sound. And he's like, that's weird. So he studied them a little bit more. He talked to some people who were scientists and it was because of the shape of their beak that not only made them expert hunters, but also allowed them to to break the, the air water barrier without without disturbing the water. Like an Olympic diver. 
Exactly, exactly. Uh-huh. So they redesigned the nose of the train to mimic uh, the shape of the hummingbird, and it got rid of the sonic boom. It's it, it's uh, <laughs> amazing. It's amazing, and like and huh. Janine always talks about, and she actually is the one who created this program that I applied to at Arizona State, um, which is one of the reasons it's the only one in the country that exists. But I had been following her work for so long. So then, when I mm-hmm. saw she had this program my like growing interest in science and how to bring it into my career and marry it with product development and my love for the environment. It just seemed like the right thing to do. Like there's another example of um, in Zimbabwe, they had these terrible earthquakes um, and everything that humans had built was like turned to rubble, right? Did not survive the earthquake. The only things that survived were these termite mounds. Hmm. And people were like, that's weird. <laughs> like, wow. again, like what's going on there? And because right. of the structures that the termites used to build their mounds, they were actually earthquake proof. And so then when architects went and rebuilt buildings, they were like, mm, let's do what those termites are building. Right. Really. And they did. And the, the buildings became much more earthquake proof than they were before. So it's like those types of examples of the, the issue is that scientists are over here and engineers and business people are over here <laughs> and they don't always speak the same language. So the idea is that biomimics learn the language of science, but also learn the language of product development and business and are the bridge that sort of brings those people together. And I, I love being that bridge. Um, and it's one of the reasons why I'm so um, passionate about the uh. fields and where, you know, the direction that I want to take my career. in. I mean, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, this, this field probably wasn't possible. Right. And now it's possible. You know, it's like one of the things of like, change. you know, our changing society and our changing job market. Like 20 years from now, there'll be jobs available that we couldn't even dream of, right? That weren't right. even, you know, weren't even invented yet. So, so does it, is the idea that, that someone would, does this only get applied post idea? Someone has an idea, they want to make it better and then they apply biomimicry or can biomimicry bring to life new ideas as well? Yeah, so really it's, um, you know, the goal is to have it be pre-idea, like why build something that's busted and then figure out how to how to get it to work, right? We want to actually bring it in further, you know, further in in the process. And I think as more and more people become aware of the field and how this gets applied, um, the earlier in the process that can, you know, that can happen. But it does look at societal challenges. Like, you know, there are organisms that are tremendous, um, you know, individual water filtration <laughs> organisms. And so do we, can we apply that to our water filtration system? So I think we can definitely look at societal problems and say, you know, Janine always says like, look, the planet has 3.8 billion years of research and development. Like the planet has figured out how to live. <laughs> right. And so can't we, instead of just studying it, how about we learn from it instead of just learning about it? Is and, there, and apply it that way. Have you found anything in the environment that can help us know what to do with Instagram supermodels? And <laughs> is there anything like, is there any kind of like a virus? <laughs> I, think, I think we should probably just like, like unfollow all those accounts. <laughs> like immediately. I have a friend who, uh, I used to teach yoga and, and meditation. I, I've sort of moved away from doing that because of some other things, but I'm still a practitioner of it. Oh. And um, I have a friend to me who said to me, like, oh, God, I get so depressed when I look at all these, like, you know, people in yoga pose, you know, their foot's behind their head, right, you know, all right. this crazy stuff. And I was like, why do you look at that? <laughs> like, stop. She's like, but I, I just can't help it. And I was like, no, you can. Like, just don't look at it. Just just stop. Like, it doesn't feel good. Like, stop. It's like, why would you keep pounding your head against a wall if it hurt? Right. Like, just just don't just do not do it. But I agree. If I, if, I, if I find in the natural world some, like, mass virus that I could just send to Instagram yeah. to, like, kill all those posts. <laughs> yes. Please, please that. make that your, mm-hmm. your thesis. Yes. Okay, yes, so backing sure. up way back, you have you always been one to experiment in different careers? Did this happen later in life, or were you like this since you were a kid? Yeah, I was always like this. 
I, when I was eight years old, I wanted to be a paleontologist and I wanted to dig up dinosaurs. Um, and I still really, really love dinosaurs, but I decided I would recruit my little sister who was, <laughs> I guess she was six at the time. And I dug this giant pit in my mother's backyard, which <laughs> she was really thrilled about that. Cause I broke everything I was using. Um, and then there was like a, like, a, and I'm talking like a giant hole. Like <laughs> it's probably like half the size of my apartment. I mean, it was ridiculous. It was like, do you think it really was that big or was this your eight year old brain being no, like, this is huge. So my brother still lives in the house and you can actually still see like a bit of the <laughs> depression of it. So it, it is a really, really big hole. Um, and I was, I was convinced that this out, uh, this rock outcropping like looked like a dinosaur to me. It looked like a, the back of a brontosaurus to me. So I was like, oh my God, I bet you there's a dinosaur under there. And I was always like a very imaginative, like had a very like active inner life. Mm-hmm. Um, So that's what I wanted to do when I was a kid. And I wish I could tell you that, like, I picked something. And I'm always in awe of people who, oh, since I was five years old, I wanted to be this. And, like, that's what I did. And I'm like, wow, you never wanted to do anything else? Like, it feels so weird to me. Are you in in awe because it's just so foreign? Or is there some jealousy in that? Or do you... Yeah, all all of that. Like, I think I'm in awe of it because I don't understand it. I'm like, uh-huh. but what about that? Like, when you saw that, didn't you think? Like, yeah. didn't you then want to be an astronaut after you wanted to be a lawyer? Like, wasn't that something you wanted to do? Um, so uh-huh. a little bit of that. Also, like, I think I could make myself a little crazy with all the things that I'm interested in. I just can't help myself. Like, I just get so curious. Like, I'm like, oh my god, it's two a.m. Like, I have to go to bed. Like, I have to stop reading about this. Like I love going down rabbit holes and I just like, I mean, I tell people to stop looking at supermodels on Instagram, but like, I can't like, <laughs> like stop learning and reading. Like I'm obsessed with it. So, yeah. and I do have like a little bit of this obsessive compulsive issue with things that I find really fascinating. So I have to then learn like everything about them. Mm. Um, and things that I'm not interested in, I'm like, I could care less about this. <laughs> like I will just, I will just dump it. But, um, but things that really interest me, like I have to go way, way into it. I also feel like there's just so much to learn in the world. Like, why would you limit yourself? Like that just doesn't, Hmm. it doesn't seem like a great idea to me. Um, and I think that that was sort of borne out. So I graduated from, I got an MBA at the university of Virginia. And when I graduated was in 2007. And so the, the recession like hit really full force about six months after I graduated. So at one point, almost two thirds of my business school class was unemployed with like a hundred thousand dollars of debt. each. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, it was bad. And I was in New York, I was working in retail and then I moved over to banking because I thought that would be a great idea. And I worked at American Express through most of the recession. Okay. So it was really, um, you know, we laid off in one pop like 10,000 people, um, you know, after Lehman Brothers failed and I had been there for five weeks. So like those types of changes to me were so traumatic. And I saw people who had done one thing for 25 years, right? It's the only thing they'd done. That's their whole network. It's all they knew. And all of a sudden their jobs just evaporated. And in some ways it was, it was horrifying. It was so upsetting and so sad, um, to watch that happen to people and in many ways, I felt like uh, it validated my desire to be interested in lots of things and also really made me even more committed to like never being pigeonholed and never being put in a box because your box can just get taken away. It's like having a and life-threatening event, like showing up in the hospital one day and then the next day realizing, holy mm-hmm. crap, this could all go away tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. And you have no, a lot of it. You know, I think we do have many times more agency than we think we do, mm-hmm. but there are certain things like there are, you know, economic market forces that you can't, <laughs> those yeah. don't have anything to, to do with you. Like there were, you know, millions of bad decisions that were made by many, many, many people that led us down the road of that recession. There was nothing that I could have personally done right. to stop that recession from happening. It was something that happened to me. Then my job was to figure out, well, now what do I do? Mm-hmm. Like for myself and, and for others after that. So that change of, to me, that was a very palpable lesson that was in my face for four years, like every single day, right. day in and day out. I watched a lot of people that I love and care about be tremendously hurt by by that. Sure. And it was it was a very powerful lesson. And I decided like, yes, I was scared about what would happen with my job and what was happening in our country and our economy. But I was also, because I am such a student, 
I was also committed to learning. And like, if there was a front row seat to the recession and I could learn everything I could possibly learn about the economy and how it works, then I'm going to take that front row seat and I'm going to learn and I'm going to make it mean something and I'm going to make it valuable for me and anybody else that I come in contact with. And was that, was that, was Amex the one that provided you the front row seat then? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I will say, you know, I wouldn't say that they did everything perfectly, I was very, very impressed with the the executive leadership team there at the time, and Ken Chenault was the CEO. And they had he had weathered the storm with 9/11, which was just the 9/11 site was right across the street from my office. I passed it every single day I went to work. Wow. Um, and at that time, it was a pit. It was a pit for many, many years. Right, right. that there was nothing happening. Um, and I would see it every single day, and it was that constant reminder of people who didn't get the chance. And would have loved it. They would have loved to have been in my seat to have another day. And so that idea, and I think that that stuck with people at uh-huh. Amex. You know, it was we you couldn't walk by that site and not be reminded of that. Uh-huh. And so their leadership decided that every single week throughout the entire recession, throughout the entire four years that I was there, there was a leader who stood up on stage in front of 56,000 people around the world and said, this is what keeps me up at night, and this is what I'm afraid of. Even at the time when our stock price had dropped to $9, mm-hmm. <laughs> and we thought Warren Buffett was going to have to buy the company to keep it alive. <laughs> and those were real conversations. He was in our building continuously. He owns a significant portion of Amex anyway, from a stock perspective. But there were real conversations about that. You know, Could that happen? Should that happen? As opposed to Amex failing, going you, bankrupt. When you, um, wow. when you think about those... T- those two really intense moments, one is continually continuously walking by the World Trade mm. Center site, and the other is getting hit in full force with the recession. You talked about being eight years old and knowing you were always interested in a lot of things. Yeah. Do you think that those two events just sort of landed on fertile soil of someone who was already interested in a variety of career paths or did that really shake you up and make you look at life differently? Yeah, I I think it's both actually. I do think that it's, I was already curious and interested. You know, I always say like I was the most unlikely banker to ever be born. (laughs) Mm. I I never had the stuff like I'm going to go into banking. Like that was not Ever, even when I was in business school, surrounded by bankers, I never thought I was going to work for a bank. Like never. Um, so I think I was always just interested. I also think that one of my main interests is always like the like the human experience, like of what someone is going through. I also had a significant amount of loss very early on in my life. And then also while I was at American Express, I went through an apartment building fire here in New York and I lost almost everything. I almost got trapped in the building. What? Um, Good God. um, And that was in 2009. So I had been at Amex for about, it was actually just about a year. So we were like full force in the recession. And my neighbor on the first floor of my apartment building, uh, she was a hoarder. And she was cooking and she spilt some grease on the stove, the gas stove. And instead of shutting off the gas, she just ran out of the building. Um, And her apartment went up and like it was in my line of apartments and it just basically like burned through the building. Um, And I went like running out of the building. I like my the kitchen floor was like heaving up and down. My radiator was ticking. I didn't know what was going on. I grabbed my keys. I just got out of the shower. I grabbed my keys, which sounds like ridiculous now. <laughs> um, and I thought, oh my God, they, I know they're doing construction downstairs in the apartment below me. They must, like something's wrong. I did not, I didn't smell smoke. There were no smoke alarms going off. The sprinklers were not going off, like nothing. Uh, what? And I ran Little out. Into, New York. Yeah. And I ran out. It's a very, very old building. I ran yeah. out into the hallway and it was just black smoke. Ever. I couldn't even see, like I could see nothing. And so I literally, um, when I was a kid, there were these commercials that Dick Van Dyke was on. That was like a stop, drop and roll commercial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was the very first thing I thought of when I left my <laughs> apartment building. So thank you, Dick Van Dyke. I love you. Um, and I got as small as I possibly could. Cause I was in a walk up and I was on the fourth floor. And I didn't know where the fire was. I just knew I had to get out of that building. And there was not an option to go back to my apartment (laughs) because I was going to get out of that building. And I literally scrambled as low as I possibly could, like hoping that I wouldn't pass out from smoke inhalation, running down the stairs out into the building. And then I turned around. I got to the sidewalk and I turned around and I was like, 
holy shit. <laughs> like the whole building was on fire. Oh um, God, and sure. the EMTs are outside. The fire trucks are like coming, like blowing down. So they have to like check you. I, I didn't realize at the time the owner of the barbershop next door came out. And he's like, do you want to use my bathroom? And I'm like, what? <laughs> like, what do you mean I want to use your right. bathroom? <laughs> like, what are you talking? He's like, I think you need to use the bathroom. And I'm like, uh, and I was in shock. Like at that point, right. like, it was I was very feisty getting out of the building and then like everything comes crashing down. Yeah. So I go into the barbershop and I'm like covered in soot. Like I didn't even know I, I was like, like I came out of a coal mine. It was ridiculous. Um, and then I got back, I cleaned myself up like as much as I could, which was not a lot. And I got outside and the EMTs are checking me and they're asking me like, how'd you get out of the building? And I was like, Oh, I, I went down four flights of stairs and they're like, well, you couldn't have. And I'm like, well, I don't know. Like, you didn't fly. <laughs> what do you think I did? And they were like, well, we're just saying that eventually the fire burned into the hallway. Like, it, like it got so hot that the door fell off its hinges, and like I would have run right into the flame if I had waited like much longer. Wow. And I and then is when I really started to have a breakdown. And it yeah. was it was weird of like when you talk about changes or or landing on fertile soil or the shock. I think the recession was not a shock. I wouldn't even say like walking by the 9/11 site. Like I was already so conscious of time that my dad died when I was a teenager, when I was in high school and I had had a lot of death in my early life. I grew up in a very old family, I would say. Sure. Like we were yeah. the only kids Dang. in our family. So, um I don't have any first cousins. Um and so everybody around me was old. Like so mm. I was used to people like not being there after a while. And so that was always very present with me. Um and I was always so aware of like the news and politics and and world events. And so I, I knew that terrible things like this happened all over the world. Like it was the first time it maybe happened in New York and it's certainly in such a gruesome, horrible way. I was also very conscious of the fact that like you don't you don't get tomorrow. It is not promised to you. Mm -hmm. And that was impressed upon me from a very young age. So I would say that landed on fertile soil. That fire, though, like changed my whole life. Mm -hmm. Like it it literally burned my life away, like literally and figuratively. Wow. And I would say that was hard. Like I had horrible PTSD. I had to go into very, very intensive therapy. Um, about six months after that fire, um, I was, I was on a business trip for Amex and my plane was hit by lightning. What? Um, which was like crazy. <laughs> we had to do this emergency landing in Syracuse. We get on the tarmac, the wing falls off of the plane. <laughs> like it was just, I know it's Gosh. crazy. And like to the this point is one that of those I was stories like, that, that, like the, the, sorry, the recipient, you have to laugh because you can't do anything else. Exactly. And, and you're laughing no. too, but I imagine yeah. inside your system, it's probably still like, uh, like the, I was like, I don't know if I'm allowed to curse on this podcast. You can bleep it out. But I was like, holy fuck, like what is happening? Like, yeah. I think it's time to end the interview. <laughs> we're, we're done here. Yeah. Um, I was literally like, wait, like lightning can take me down. And like, there was a very real conversation in my head that was happening of like, well, then who cares about any, like, does anything matter or does everything matter? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that was a very weird, like trippy, it was a very trippy mental road to Jeez, go down. Yeah. Um, and still, I think because I'm so stubborn and so headstrong that a friend of mine uh, was having lunch with me and um, he was like, well, how are you doing? I'm like, I'm fine. <laughs> like all this shit's right. happened to me and I'm fine. Yeah. And he's uh, like, I don't think you're fine. Huh. And I was like, excuse me. <laughs> like, you don't think I'm fine? <laughs> and he's like, no, he's like, I appreciate that you're strong, but like, this is too much. This is too much. Like mm -hmm. you need to get some help. And I'm like, I don't need help from anyone. I don't need mm -hmm. from you. <laughs> like I was, I was very, you know, I'm very difficult. Um, and he said, can you just go to this therapist? Like, just go once. And he would not leave me alone. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to go just to shut you up. And that's why I'm going to go. And so I friend. went with my big old attitude problem. <laughs> like, well, I went to this therapist. Look, my building look. burned down. I got hit by lightning like, <laughs> in the air. I'm fine. What do you got for me? What do you got? Come at me. Um, and he, he sat there 
and he listened to me and I told him all the reasons why I don't need therapy and how much I've survived. But I I mean, for an hour, it was just ridiculous. I really wish I had a recording of it because I just, I mean, I just would love to hear what an absolute disaster I was. Uh, And he's like sitting there with his folded arms and he's listening and he's listening. He's like, well, I have two things to say. Great. We're all, our hour's almost up anyway. <laughs> he's, like, he's like, uh, I think I can help you if you want to be helped, and I am not afraid of you. Wow. <laughs> I was like, <gasps> and again, I was completely insulted. <laughs> and okay. also for one of the only times in my life speechless, and I grabbed my bag, and I was like, well, I'll see you next week. <laughs> and, I <went> <laughs> and I went back every week sometimes multiple times a week, uh, for three years. Good for you. Because there was so much crap (laughs) to be, you know, it is, you know, it's the trauma of everyday life, but it's also, you know, my dad was an abusive alcoholic. He died very tragically. There was a lot of trauma from all of that. When I was a kid, um, there was all this, this is in the middle of the recession, right? American Express, there's my fire, there's the plane, there's the massive disappointment of being such a poor kid, having gone to a very rich university, but, you know, you know, we were so poor. And I think the thing about poverty, I think the poverty actually also has a very traumatic effect and a lasting effect is that when you don't have enough, you think you aren't enough. And I think part of this like constant, searching and I have to do more and I have to be better. And like, I think in some ways it's a neuroses <laughs> mm. and some ways it's curiosity. I think a lot of it is driven by, I had nothing when I was a kid mm. and I just, I was, t- I was not going to be an adult who had nothing. And yeah. it was like that, that was very, very powerful for me. So when you talk about like that fertile ground that like yeah. all this stuff is just falling on top of mm-hmm. that, you know, that certainly drove that for sure. You are so resilient. Yeah, I I didn't really think about myself as resilient for a long time because inside I was dying, right? Mm -hmm. I was very resilient on the outside. I had a really rough, tough exterior, despite the fact that I'm I'm very small, five, one and a half. Um, (laughs) um, And so despite like my diminutive size, (laughs) um, I was very, very tough. And I Mm. was proud of the fact that I was tough. Like I wore like a badge of honor. Right. And I did not ask for help because I didn't need it. I wasn't one of those people who needed help. Everybody right. else needed help and I could help them, but I didn't need it. Wasn't it wasn't my problem. <laughs> did you find yourself actively endorsing that mantra or did you just find out later that that was something that was the way you were acting without realizing it? Oh no, I knew I was doing it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't stop it, but I knew I was doing it. I knew I was dying on the inside in a lot of ways. Um, I think that without that fire and without Brian, who's my therapist, um, I probably would not be here. I'm pretty yeah. sure. I'm really? pretty sure I would have burnt. Yeah, for sure. Wow. Like I had a, I think it was, it was right before I went to see Brian. I, and the, I was telling my friend who I was having lunch with, who actually sent me to this therapist. Uh, I had had this dream. It was very, very disturbing because I was having nightmares all the time and I just couldn't really sleep at all. And I had a dream that I dove off the roof of my apartment building and I woke up like right before I hit the ground. And I was telling my friend this and I was like, so, you know, I think there might be like something there you know? <laughs> 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 that might be indicative of some problem. Um, and but I was still like kind of cavalier about it like Mm. well maybe I can survive this looking back now I don't think that there's any like either my body would have broken down or like I would have probably just taken my own life like I think it was have gotten to that point where I was I was struggling so much and people are like but they seemed fine on the outside you know people say that all the time right right and I'm like I know they do like but I get that in a very visceral way like I I understand that in a, in a, in a very, very, um, you know, like a frightening amount of, of, uh, empathy and compassion for that. Cause well, I get you, it. Did you find, um, so if, if you had these traumatic events that were happening mm-hmm. from the time you were young, yeah. uh, there, I wonder if you sort of came to expect them and if that didn't bolster 
your uh, belief that, you know, I can sort of, I'm fine. Like I got this because mm-hmm. if enough shit keeps happening to you, you, you sort of just come to expect it. And then when it happens, you, you know, in my experience, you enter into this like bear down, just take care of it. I'm going to duck and like fly down the stairs mode. Mm-hmm. And then you just kind of never leave it. Does that ring true for you? <clears throat> yeah. I think I always say that like I was operating in emergency room mode, like out of the womb. Like, and mm. I think that was my natural, uh, it was <laughs> so funny when I went through my yoga teacher training, I started it actually after the fire. And I think that was a significant part of my healing process too. Uh, there's a way that you can check like your dosha, like kind of like what the elements are that you're made of. And yeah. my yoga teacher, it's like taking your pulse and like a bunch of other things you do. And he, she was like, oh, this is weird. And I was like, I'm sure it is. <laughs> like, um, she mm-hmm. was like, you're just all fire. Like your whole personality is just mm-hmm. on fire. Huh. And I think that that's true of my personality. I think it's probably true of my, you know, my art and my writing. Um, also, my, my last name is Avampado, which in Sicilian means flash of flame in a pan. It's the, liter- <laughs> it's the literal translation. Wow. So I think I was probably marked at birth <laughs> um, right. but with like this fiery element. And right. what I really worked on with Brian was how do I actually use that anger and that fire and that frustration? And how do I make meaning of it? Because otherwise, what's the point of surviving? Right. Right. Like you're going to burn yourself out or you're going to figure out how to make it fuel. And like those are the two choices. (laughs) Um, And so I had to learn what I think I kept doing was like, I'm fine. I'm fine. Everything's fine. And also refusing to be angry about any of it or to be like truly recognize all of my disappointment. Um, I was like, well, I just have to keep going because like, like you said, like I just expected like terrible shit to keep happening. Right. I thought that would be my whole life. Yeah. And then I think that's well, and why you had pretty point, good reason to believe that too. Cause these aren't yeah. normal. Uh, well, they're not, I, I should, the word normal doesn't help, but they're, they're, they're really intense experiences. They're very intense. And like, they're not, they're not normal. And I think mm-hmm. what's so would, what I have faced a little bit as an adult and I think this is part of the fact that I'm such a, a good actor in some ways, um, is that people look at me and they don't think any of that stuff has ever happened. Like they like, oh, well, like she's so cute and she smiles a lot. Like, and, and so nothing ever bad ever happened to her. And like, and people think that, or yeah. they look at you and they say like, well, you couldn't have grown up poor because you're articulate. Right. Wow. You think you think people who are poor can't be intelligent and articulate? That's Mm -hmm. interesting. Do you want to talk about that bias? (laughs) You know, I think that there there is this idea of like people look at me and they think like, oh, I know that. I know that archetype. I know Mm -hmm. who that person is. And like they don't know anything now. Like, you know, they talk to me for five minutes and then they're like, oh, shit, (laughs) (laughs) maybe I don't. But it but it's on the surface. And I think part of that is I don't I for many, many years did not want to talk about that stuff. I didn't want people to think I was different. I didn't want them to know that I grew up poor. Didn't want them to know my dad was an alcoholic. I didn't want them to know um, that I suffered from like crippling insecurity, right? So I built this giant shell Mm -hmm. around myself and the fire burned that out. I didn't have a shell anymore. You know, if you were in a movie, I feel like at some point superpowers would have emerged. (laughs) Like, like the, it's just the the Deadpool effect of finally yeah. getting hit by lightning in an airplane. You you can like, start oh. finally shoot lightning out of your hands or something like that. Yeah, and what's really interesting? It's interesting that you would say that, Josh, because uh, in my <laughs> in my book, uh, Emerson Page, who's my who is my protagonist, um, mm-hmm. my heroine, she that is what happens to her. She goes through a lot of these horrible things, and I think you know. Uh, with Brian, I sort of learned, like, we actually do have some superpowers. We all do, hmm. right? They're hidden. Maybe I can't shoot fire out of my hands, although I, I'd like to give it a try. <laughs> and see, <laughs> and see how that might go. Um, Maybe so if you just scream your last name super yeah, loud. Yeah, there's, like, some kind of, like, power. But I do think uh, a friend of mine recently sent me something. Uh, my friend Rachel sent me something a few uh, weeks ago. And uh, it was actually that uh, that humans have a very, very, very small degree of bioluminescence to them, really? but we are not able to perceive it. 
like the way that we can with like some animals, you know, have bioluminescence and you can go, there's plankton that has bioluminescence and you can go, you know, like night snorkeling and see it. Humans do too. And this, it was this very sweet quote that Rachel sent me and she said, you know, I think sometimes that yours is brighter than others. Mm. (laughs) And I do think that there is this idea of like, you know, sometimes someone walks into a room and you're like, oh, someone is here. (laughs) So someone is with like, there is an energy field or there's some type of perception. And I do think that we, we have the ability to, to hone that. And so I do feel like there is this kind of superpower. I also feel like I like to think that my superpower is like, you know, radical love and compassion, right? Mm. Like I understand someone's, like someone who's suffering, I never say like, oh, you should just, you know, just buck up, you know, right. just tough things happen. Like, you know, my sister used to say this quote of like, well, life's tough, get a helmet. And like, there's this idea of like, you know, just, you have to roll with it. And like, I'm like, y- yes. And Uh, especially when anyone's like really shitty to me, which like, you know, sometimes in New York happens more often than you would like, even if it's someone on a subway who's like just being a jerk. Right. I also try to like really embody this idea of like everyone is dealing with some kind of struggle that no one else knows anything about. Yeah. Right. And that was me for many, many, many years. Now I'm very vocal about my struggles, (laughs) But, but for a long time, I'm sure I was pretty shitty to a lot of people. Like, I don't, I don't doubt that because I was just trying to survive. Mm-hmm. Um, I wasn't really thriving. I was surviving. And I think, I think that's true for a lot of people. I think yeah. that you don't have to go, you don't have to have your building like burn down around you to understand trauma or to go through, you know, we have relationships that end, we have massive disappointments, you know, jobs and friendships and we have to, move, you know, like there's, there's terrible stuff that happens to people all the time. And that stuff builds up, you know, builds up in our bodies physically. It certainly builds up in our minds and in our mental health. And so I would like to think like, if it did give me a radical superpower, as much as I would love to shoot fire out of my hands, mm. I do think that it opened up my heart in a way that it was never open before. Um, that I, I get, like when people say they're struggling, I, I like understand that at such a deep level that like my eyes tear up and like, I, I feel that pain, right. I, I get it. Why it is so difficult sometimes to go on. You know, I sometimes think that at least in a more developed country where there's still a lot of suffering, but it's not every other person um, I sometimes think that it's those mantras and those metaphors like life's tough, get a helmet that prevent us from becoming empathetic because we can't truly identify that we have suffered because we're not allowed to think of it as such. Mm-hmm. So and you're so lucky. I mean, shouldn't you just feel grateful for what you have? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like shouldn't, shouldn't, and, and you get into some, one of my friends calls it the suffering Olympics where you start to compare and mm. contrast. Well, mine can't be that bad because that person's is far worse. And I, I think that there's something, and I think there can be something empathetic in that statement, but just, I think a lot of us can't be empathetic with suffering because we don't categorize some of the experiences that we've had as yeah as that like we don't know how because it's just the kind of like well speed bump keep going don't feel it don't think about it Mm -hmm. you know one thing you said i wanted to go back to uh you said this either means nothing or this means everything when you got hit that's an incredibly existential spiritual statement what did you do with that how did you process that and and what did that do to what i assume is you're into yoga there has to be some spiritual element in that for you yeah for sure there there are definitely so i was raised um by a pretty traditional like catholic household um i do not practice anymore and I, i don't belong to any um organized religion now but i do consider myself to be very very spiritual and that i do feel like there is spirit all around us i do believe like when people I think it's a crossing over and I do think they're with us all the time. So like in that kind of like, I feel like there's lots and lots of ghosts in my life that kind of like hang out. <laughs> I can't always see them or hear them, but I, I am always cognizant of their presence. Mm. Um, I think for me, like that choice of like, it means nothing or it means everything was, that was like a fork in the road. And the choice was, if it means nothing, 
then just jump off the building because it doesn't mean it. Like this is a waste of time. Total nihilism. <laughs> that's, I'm out. that's that choice. I'm out. I got to go. I might as well like just stem the bleeding now. And I think, I think there are people who get to that point. You know, my dad got to that point. It just didn't mean anything to him anymore. Mm-hmm. And it was like, okay, is that what you want your legacy to be? Is that what you want people to know about you? And the other choice is, well, it means everything. Mm-hmm. And it means you have to realize that every moment is sacred and important. And you are not to waste them. It is not, this time is not for you to waste. And I think in some ways, going by that 9-11 site, I don't think there is a single person in that building who wouldn't have loved to get out alive. And I I 100% believe that. Um, And I think that's true in a lot of cases. There's so many people with like terminal illnesses. Like just this week, um, one of my mentors was 49 years old on Saturday morning. He went out for his jog in the morning and he just never came home. He had a massive heart attack and he died. Um, he was super helpful to me when I, I moved back to New York, uh, just a little over a year ago, I'd been in DC for a couple years for work and moved back and he was really helpful in my job search, you know, this past year. And, um, it was, it was very much awake, probably like 49 and he was like so full of life and had mm. so much life ahead of him. And I think about people like that, of like, God, he would have given anything for another day, anything. And so I get another day. And so the way to honor that is to, to make it matter mm. and to make it mean something. Sometimes I wish I wasn't so cognizant of time passing. <laughs> like like there's, I become so aware of it that it, it can occasionally like wear me out. Um, and I, I have gotten better as I've gotten older of like taking a break and recharging. And right. I went to Iceland recently for a week, which is a very long vacation for me because I don't usually go away for a week. Um, and uh, but I, I find like okay, and like every day, like I, I try to be. I have a gratitude jar by my bed, and like I write a little something on a post-it note, and I just like stick it in there um, to remind myself of like what I was grateful for today, even if it was a super shitty day. Yeah. Um, and so like those kinds of things, those practices, those rituals, which I think in some ways are like spiritual or religious. To your question, like mm-hmm. I think they do. That was very much a choice, though. Like it means nothing and end it now where it means everything and make it matter. And I just, I chose the, I chose that fork. That, that was it. Good for you. That's an incredible. It wasn't I mean, easy. No, but. that's why I say good for you. Cause that is a really intense, hard choice. And that sounds like that was roughly 10 years ago. Yeah, it was, uh, so I, I have some, so uh, September 5th, uh, in the military, there's this idea of an alive day when you survive a really difficult thing. It almost becomes like another birthday. Mm-hmm. And so for me, September 5th is that day. It's my my alive day. Um, yeah. And uh, I was in Iceland for it this year. So it was nine years ago. Um, mm-hmm. And I celebrate it. Like, I think, wow, I climbed up to the top of a volcano in Iceland. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, because I just can't get away from fire. Right. Um, like, <laughs> it's like, it's like ninth alive day. Um, I just have this image of you standing on top of the volcano, holding your hands out in front of you, <laughs> and screaming your name, being like, why isn't the fire coming out of my hands yet? Where is it? Why can I not conjure this? Um, and it was, if somebody had told me, and I always think about, like, I go back to that day. There probably isn't a day that I don't think about that day nine years ago. I don't think there's been a single day that I haven't thought about it. Um, and I thought if someone had told me when I was standing on the sidewalk looking at that building that nine years later I would have the career I have and the writing career I have and the creative life I have and the friends I have. And like, I, I just, I would have never thought this life was possible. Mm, never. That was beautiful. Never. Like I, I would have told people they were crazy and like, get the hell away from me. You don't know what you're talking about. You don't, you don't know me, you know, my life. Um, and it was amazing to like stand there on top of, of that. And it was like a vertical climb up for an hour. And I was like, I'm going to get to the top of this fucking volcano. (laughs) 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 I was like digging in. Um, and it was amazing. And I look at those pictures and I'm probably going to, I'll get one like frame to put it in my apartment somewhere, but it was wow, like healing is possible. It is hard and it is a tough road, but it is abundantly possible. And I I think uh, 
there was this great quote that I read like a long time ago. Anne Lamott is one of my favorite writers. Yeah. I love her so, so much. And she wrote a book, Bird by Bird, which I like, I have on my bookshelf and I read it all the time. I go back to it all the time. And she quotes Toni Morrison um, in that book. And she said, you know, the, ele- the, the reason for freedom is to free somebody else. That's re- like roughly paraphrasing it. And so if you have if you are no longer racked in bondage and you are not beholden to, to pain and to your past, then you should write your story and risk freeing someone else. And not everybody will be happy that you did it. There are plenty of people who want you to keep your secrets and your silence, but you owe it to other people to make meaning of what you have survived to help someone else survive. And is this, is this, was, was this the, the, the kernel of the idea for Emerson Page and where the light enters your book? Um, it, I think, you know, I read that quote by Anne when I was in college. So it was a long time ago. Um, and so I think I've hung on to that quote. I think with Emerson, she sort of showed up to me when I woke up from that nightmare and I had jumped off the roof of my building. Um, the moon was really, really, really bright that night. And I didn't have any, uh, furniture. I was sleeping on a borrowed air mattress from a friend because I didn't have any stuff. Um, and I woke up and I was looking at the moon was so bright. It was like blinding. And that's sort of when she came to me. Um, and that was now, uh, yeah, that was nine, just like a little, little, little less than nine years ago. Um, and she started to show, she started to show up for me all the time and sort of like follow me around. And I think that I wanted people to know that they could survive something. If I could survive something difficult, mm-hmm. I wanted them to know that they could. And it felt like a fiction book by this very, you know, this young girl who was gritty and tough, but also kind and mm-hmm. loving could do, could do that. Um, and I think, you know, the, 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 where the light enters um, comes from two places. So there's a, there's a roomy quote, that says um the wound is the place where the light enters you mm-hmm. and i had lots of wounds <laughs> mm-hmm. and i needed them i needed them to mean something and to be valuable and i found a lot of peace in that quote there's also um a great quote by uh the late great leonard cohen um mm-hmm. that says there is a crack in everything that's how the light gets in yeah. in his allegiance album and it's like those two things to, like those two quotes together sort of are where the where the title of the book um came from but it was about you know that I feel like the that fire you know did I had always wanted to write a book and I'd always wanted to be an author and it was that idea of like well I don't know how to do that I can't do that and I think I was like well okay well you also just die in an apartment building and never do it (laughs) you know is that what you want (laughs) I have this very like my therapist Brian is like this ever-present like voice in my mind of like whenever I say you know, things like, oh, I just can't. Oh, mm. I can't. You know, all this doubter syndrome. And he just sort of like shows up. <laughs> it's like weird flash. But like, well, that's mm. a great attitude. <laughs> like, like, And just like not being afraid of me and like not not me. Like, you know, he wouldn't let me get away with my own bullshit. Mm. And I think that it's important to have somebody in your life who who doesn't let you get away with it, you know, and, who, and who's in your corner all the time. And he, he's always in my corner. So this idea <clears throat> that you had... Uh, this idea of this means everything and when you like when you're free your job is now to go provide freedom for others Mm -hmm. is that part of why there's some been some tension for you in working in tech yeah yeah i mean what really there's so many things that annoy me about the technology industry (laughs) despite the fact that i work in it and again that i love it but it's very much this love-hate relationship for sure that's really palpable one of the things that i hate about the tech industry specifically in the u.s is that most of the technology that's developed is for the one percent yes it is oh my gosh i've said this oh it's so good to hear someone say this it's basically (laughs) like i was talking to an investor once um, uh, and I was just getting so tired of the Silicon Valley scene. Go away. Uh, and I was, <laughs> I, I was just basically, I think it came out something like it wasn't super well received, uh, but it was basically like, I, I think we're making, we're making products that make rich people's lives marginally more efficient. That yep. is, that is the tech industry and it just grosses me out. Yep. 
Yep. No, I'm, I am a hundred percent with you. I'm like, cause you need a new version of the Apple watch that right. can make your life a lot better. Oh, I see some rich person wants to go to Mars and that's what we're going to spend all that money. Okay. Yes. <laughs> and half of our world doesn't have internet access. Yeah. Oh. Literally half the world. And, like, and huge portions of the world are dying of hunger. And we're like, yeah. you know, you know, laundry is just not very convenient for me. I sure wish somebody would develop right. an app that got it to pick, like did my laundry for me. Yeah. And I mean, and it's, I, it's hard to not be a critical jerk about it, but come on. Come on. <laughs> come on. Like I do. I totally agree. Like we are not developing for the base of the human race. We're developing for like the tippy top of the triangle. Right. And mm. I just I think that that's a big reason why I want to take this turn in biomimicry, because I am done. I, I'm I'm done with developing products for rich people. I have nothing against rich people. Good for you. Like I, You made right. all your money. Great. I'm real proud of you. <laughs> I don't want to build products for you. You are fine. Yeah. You will continue to be fine. Your great, great, great grandchildren will be fine, provided that we don't destroy the planet in the process. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's also it's I think that part of it is like because I did grow up as a poor kid, like I couldn't. There's this um, there's a cartoon that talks about like equality versus equity. Like there's a, it's like a like a political cartoon. And it's there's this idea that equity is about giving everybody the same. Like, oh, everybody gets their same little size box so they can see over this fence in the cartoon. And it's like, mm, that might be equality, but it's not equity. Equity is people get what they need so that they can all rise and they can all see over the fence. Somebody like me needs a bigger box <laughs> to right. see over that fence than somebody who's seven feet tall, right? right. And so it's, it is, I feel like, because that, I think it's one of the reasons uh, or one of the, the ways that I think about making my past mean something and that I was a poor kid and I'm not a poor adult. I, I think part of it is how I'm going to make meaning with my expertise and my education is to work on products and like work on saving the planet for everybody, yeah. not just for this tiny like triangle at the top. Yeah. Um, and I think and that's a big part of me wanting to make that change. That's amazing. Yeah. Um, I mean, it has I, to be done. <laughs> it does have to. Well, it, that's the thing. The, the urgency doesn't seem to be Oof. felt, but it is yeah. so real that so many mm -hmm. people are yeah. um, dying. Not, not, not figuratively. Right. But, but actually liter literally dying. Literally dying. And mm -hmm. we... You know, I think it is this idea of, you know, someone said to me, and like not to get political, but I'm sure you can imagine what my political leanings are. Um, that someone wait, said to wait, me, wait, 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 Leaf, what do you think? Trump? <laughs> I can't, I can't, I just don't know. I don't have enough information yet. I just don't have enough information. Uh, I also <laughs> went to college with Donald Trump's son. So I have like many, many feelings um, about the Trump family. Um, nice. And you know, somebody said to me recently, like, well, you know, I didn't vote for him, but man, my 401ks never look better. Oh, did you kick him in the nuts? And I was, it, I was at this lunch with a whole bunch of people and a friend of mine is sitting across the table from me. And if I think that there might've been fire shooting out of my eyes, like, I think it was actually possible that I was like, and my friend was like, <laughs> don't please, do it. please don't like, like not here in, in, in a public, like, and I'm like, yeah. I have to go to the restroom. <laughs> like I got up and I went, I was so full of fury because that's what it, like, that's the problem. It's like, well, I mean, I'm doing all right. So right. who cares? Right. Like that, that's, that's why we are where we are because everybody in their own little sphere is okay. And I think what I cannot I cannot look at my life that way. Like I can't go out into the world. Like sometimes I think <laughs> I could probably do with a little more self-protection, but at this point, I, I don't think it's happening. You're I'm like a heart invincible. with legs. I'm just like walking around yeah. the world because it's, it is very difficult for me to look at stuff. Like I'll pass people on the street and be like, Hey, can I have a dollar? I'm like, can I buy you a meal? Would you, do you want, I can go in there and buy, I'll be right back. <laughs> like I just, I feel like we have to do, 
something for people who are suffering. I don't think it's okay to look suffering in the eye and say, nah, yeah, <laughs> not my problem. Well, like, I, I just don't I do think, think we can do that. I do think your point about us all being just kind of, I'm fine is a, I think that that's a good word because we're all culpable mm-hmm. that, that we oh, all, sure. we're all doing that to us, to a, to one degree or another. And, and I think personally where I'm really resonating with your story is that when you spend so much time developing products and working with people who have significant uh, money and, or who mm-hmm. are trying to develop products for people with significant money, it does really, it feels quite hypocritical after a while. And yeah. it, as one who feels the tension and as the tension grows and when you stay in that, it's, it's very difficult to know when you're living in a good tension because so much of life is paradoxical versus yeah. when you need to just bail because your system is telling you, you need to go into biomimicry now, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. so which, which is one, I guess I'm looking at the clock. We've been talking for a super long time, which I'm thrilled by, yeah. but I, I did have one question that's a bit of a rough transition, but sure, sure. With all of the different career, uh, I'm, I'm used to rough transitions. Okay, it's great. Okay. <laughs> um, well, with all the different different paths that you've taken, how do you know when it's time to quit something or start something? Yeah, it's such a, no. I don't think that's a rough transition at all. It's such a good one. I wrestle with it all the time. Um, I usually leave when I'm still interested. That's a problem (laughs) in like multiple parts of my life. Um, But I don't, I rarely wait until I just like, I just like hate my life. Like I, I try to be a little bit ahead of the curve. I'm like, "Mm." and I think it's because of this, I'm so cognizant of this time passing that I, it's almost like a daily evaluation for me. Like it's tiring. It's very tiring. Um, but I find it's the only way to keep yourself from spending years at a dead end. I have lots of friends who have been in jobs, like literally some of them for 10 years who hate it and they've hated it for 10 years. Mm -hmm. And I just didn't ever want that to happen. And so I could see myself kind of burning out on tech. Uh, and it's one of the reasons why, like, I'm looking at this graduate degree and, um, because I can see myself like in two years, this isn't going to be okay. Like so there's, it's there's not a just trend. That, there, there's like you, there's something that's hap- that happens in your soul that says, yeah, I don't know if I can do this. Yeah. And, and I then, think it's like a, I think it's like a satisfaction. Like do I, th- because I do these daily reflections of like, was this a good day? <laughs> and, yeah. and I think that that the daily reflection is exhausting and I, also think in some ways it's like it is a weird paradox of like it's also uplifting and and helps me like helps limit my own personal bullshit factor because look Mm -hmm. you can talk yourself into anything right you can talk yourself into well i have health insurance and i have a good paycheck and like when i was at amex you know i would not say i was happy for most of the time i was there but there was nowhere to go and the truth was i had a hundred thousand dollars worth of debt and nobody else was paying my bills yeah. So I had, I felt like I had to tough it out. There, there were literally no jobs. <laughs> there yeah. was nowhere to go. So I, I made this little list for myself. This is so pathetic, but I made this written list of like health insurance, paid vacation time. Like I literally listed like what was good about the job and like taped it to my door <laughs> <laughs> so that I would read it before I would leave for work every day. Cause sometimes I just did not want to go. That doesn't and I sound pathetic. To, like, that sounds smart. <laughs> I, I guess it was more like survivalist. I wish there were more inspiring things on that list is why uh, like, I think it's so pathetic. Like, I wish it was like, I'm like making the world a better place. I'm like, right. no, I'm making credit cards for rich people. Like yeah. that's what I'm doing. Like I'm developing a mobile app so someone can pay their bill easier because they decided to go on a shopping spree on fifth Avenue. Yeah. (laughs) Like that's what I'm doing with my life. (laughs) Like like I, but, but that's where I was, you know, it was just, it was the reality of how to survive. And, you know, sometimes I, I think that those, sometimes that stuff is necessary. Like there are times 
like them that I stayed in a job like longer than I wanted to stay. But it was just it was the reality of my situation. And it wasn't like I wasn't trying to go somewhere else. I wasn't trying to do something else. Um, But it's also that time where I found, you know, I started to do freelance journalism and I started to do a lot more writing at that time, too, because I needed a creative outlet. And so I had to build something else up while I was working hard and like feeding myself. So, um, you know, I quit stuff. Sometimes you quit stuff when you feel like I can see the writing on the wall, albeit maybe it's two years away. And that might lead to another starting of something. But what about something like the book where? That wasn't a career shift. That's an ad, no. that's adding something to your life. How do you know when to start those types of things? Yeah, I uh, I think sometimes I, and there are definitely things that I have started that I get part of the way in, and I'm like, nope, <laughs> like like either not my cup of tea, or oh, this is going to take way more time than I feel like is worth it. I think it is a little bit of cost versus value for me. Mm-hmm. Of how much is this costing me? Whether in like true money or time or energy or effort. And there's always an opportunity cost, right? Like anything that I do, I wish I wasn't so conscious of this either, but I am because of the time issue. You don't get the time back, Mm -hmm. like, and you can't make more. (laughs) So it's really frustrating to me and I wish I could make more time, but I can't. Um, And so you do have to be cognizant of if I put the energy towards this project, like this book, there's a whole bunch of other stuff that I'm not gonna do personally and professionally. And that I have to be okay with that. It is a constant negotiation. I mean, this Mm -hmm. book took eight years. You know, it was five years of thinking about it, two years of writing it, and a year of getting it through the the process with my publisher. Um, So there was a lot of stuff that I didn't do. And I definitely had, you know, some very close friends who were like, don't you feel like you're wasting your time? Couldn't you be doing something else? Shouldn't you find a husband? Like, shouldn't you do some, like, shouldn't those you put don't it sound into like your job? <laughs> yeah, it was, it was, I mean, I, I rooted those people out of my life real quick, yeah. but there were definitely people who were like, oh, you're writing a book. Mm, yeah. So mm-hmm. many people, writing, But like it, it, there were definitely people who felt like I was wasting my time. Mm. And I think even if nothing ever came of the book, you know, even if it sat in a drawer and nobody ever read it. I was proud that I put that story together. It meant something to me yeah. and it meant something to the kid in me that I was writing for. And that's how that was worth it for me. Sure, there's tons of other stuff I could have done. I could have definitely poured that effort into American Express. (laughs) I mean, that makes me laugh. Like, what would be the point in that? Why? They're fine. Mm -hmm. I quit, Mm -hmm. they were fine. Like two <laughs> seconds later, they were fine. Um, like nobody, nobody felt like, oh God, how is Amex going to survive? Like, no, like it, it wasn't true. There are right. people who've read the book who were like, this was the message I needed. Yeah, Thanks. That's, that's beautiful. And so for me, that's where those projects, like like that factor for me, is. It, does it help me? Does it like feed my soul (laughs) and does it do something for someone else those are kind of the two filters that i use i've definitely done a bunch of creative projects i was like this is bullshit stop doing this (laughs) it's not helping you and it's not helping anybody else so just stop doing it um Mm. and that i definitely you know i i'm also okay with that of like failing or learning something for something that you know doesn't work right i'm I'm okay with that i failed at so many things in my life that it's like fine (laughs) I feel like as long as I learned something, you know, yeah. it was worth it. there are very few things I've ever done. There's a couple things. Um, and there's a couple jobs that I've been in that I was like, wow, there's like some amount of time I'll never get back. I mean, definitely, <laughs> like, there are definitely some of those, but they're, they're very few and far between. And I, I still learned something from them. So, well, one of the questions we, we like to ask to wrap up is what you might tell someone else who is experiencing similar things. Now, this is a weird one with you because I don't know how many people are going to get hit by lightning on an airplane <laughs> and deal with a, a fire in a building. Fire. But people sure. who have dealt with this level of uh, trauma or suffering or uh, people who are questioning how to use their time, maybe as a result of a traumatic event or not, what would you say to them as they're processing through these things? Yeah, I mean, I think that there is something... You know, it's it's the very it's a very unfortunate part about the human experience that we all suffer in some way. Like we've all been dis like show me a person who hasn't been disappointed, who hasn't been broken, who hasn't, you know, 
just been depressed and sad and angry. Like those are parts of the human experience, right? And I, I was feeling all those things, maybe in more intense ways than some other people. Um, I always say like, I would never wish my life on anybody else, but I would also never change mine either, which sounds weird. Cause you're like, really? You'd go back and be hit by lightning. Um, but yeah, I think I, I would. I mean, I, I love my life now and I, I wouldn't have it without each of those pieces. And I think, um, if someone says like, well, how, how do I hang on? I, I hang on because I think that there is a reason that I'm still here. I think there's a reason I ran out of that burning building. Mm -hmm. I think there's a reason that at least we got to the tarmac before the wing fell off. <laughs> uh, I think I was put here for something greater and the pursuit of that meaning and something greater is the reason why I keep getting up. And I would encourage people that everybody has it. It doesn't have to be a book. It doesn't have to be some grand thing. But there is someone's life that you can make better by surviving. Mm. And if I was just doing this all for me, I guarantee you I would not be here anymore. It would. I, I would have taken the other fork in the road. I would have just ended it been done with it. But it's really because I felt like someone else could benefit from my story, that someone somewhere needed me the way that when I was a kid, I needed the adult that I am now. And there's some kid out there that that is true for. There's probably some adults out there that that's true for too. And, and that's why I keep doing what I'm doing. Well, this has been an amazing conversation. Yeah, You're an amazing person. It. Oh, thanks. I'm so happy that you guys are doing this podcast and talking about these things. You know, I think that's the that's the other thing is, is we don't we're so afraid to talk about these things. Like mm. they don't want to have these conversations like, oh, I don't want to ask that question because it's too personal. You know, mm. like that we have this we are afraid of intimacy and afraid of being close to someone. And so there's this like whole like culture of small talk. And I'm like, oh, get away from me with the small talk. Like I can't, we have like so many big <laughs> things to talk about. <laughs> like, yeah. let's talk about the big things and connection and, and community. And so I think you doing this podcast is just such an amazing service and like understanding, like how do people change and why? Because you're right. There's a lot of people who don't. Like there are people who go through these types of things and don't change or the way they change is that they become bitter. And are you going to be right. bitter? Or are you going to be better? Ugh. And like, that's another fork. And I just, I saw what bitter did to my dad. Mm -hmm. He got bitter. He ended six feet under, you know, too, way too early in my opinion. Wow. And I just feel like I knew, well, well, hell, I don't want that. Yeah. <laughs> and so I have to make a different choice. Yeah, And I think that that is, we're so thinking like, oh, we have no choice. And I think we actually do have more choice than we think. I'm not saying that it's easy. And I do not ever blame somebody who takes the other fork. I don't know what their life is like. I don't know what trauma they've dealt with. And maybe it was too much. And they just could they didn't have the tools or the strength to do it anymore. And that's a choice. And I'm sorry that that's the choice they made. And like, I wish I had gotten to them in time. <laughs> right. Um, you can't save everybody, mm -hmm. you know, and I, I want to save the people I can. It sounds like you're doing an amazing job doing that, Krista. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks so much for, for having me and right, yeah. for doing this podcast. I really, really appreciate it. it was well, so we feel very honored that you would share your story with us. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, you know, John, you know, not to like be in the John Booker fan club, but, but why not? You know? yeah. um, he is a person that, uh, and I haven't even known John for that long. Um, and he is a person, I met him about a year ago as he was on a podcast and I haven't thought like cyber stalking him for a while um, mm -hmm. and all of his writing. And so I reached out to him after I heard him on, on a podcast and we became friends over Twitter. And then I actually recently just met him in person and he was in a storytelling show that I do here in New York. And, and he is a person that like, you know, it's, it's very cool in the world that your tribe is out there. You know, it's just like, yeah. if you want to find your pack, you have to howl. Yeah, that's a cool expression. <laughs> and and okay. I think that, you know, that you guys are, are part of that tribe and part of that pack. And I'm just so honored that I got to meet you. 